Loretta Ross. <laughs> See, we're laughing already. The way, the way you just said my name, like it actually meant something. <laughs> it does mean something. I feel like I've been living with you now for weeks because I have been reading well, everything. Don't tell your wife. <laughs> <laughs> I've been living with your intellectual biography. Okay, thank you. Before I left my house to come over here to your house, which you call what, maximalist in terms of interior design? <laughs> right. There's not an empty space on any wall in my house. Before I left, I said, maybe there's something I haven't learned about Loretta Ross. And I stumbled upon this article from 1997 in the Los Angeles Times about a story that they almost made a movie about. And you know what I'm talking yeah. about. His name was Floyd. What was his last name? Floyd Cochran. He was, had been the national spokesman for the Aryan Nations, and I had a chance to work with him after he defected from the Aryan Nations. And that was my one of my earliest up-close-and-personal work with deprogramming of white supremacists. And I learned as much from Floyd as I'm sure that I taught him. So you've got to tell me because you know, I haven't heard you talk in detail about the story of Floyd Cochran and what you learned from him. Tell me that story in fine detail. Well, fine detail is that I'm sitting at my offices at the Center for Democratic Renewal, which used to be the National Anti-Klan Network that had been founded by Reverend C.T. Vivian, who'd been an aide to Dr. Martin Luther King. We were founded right after the Greensboro murder in 1979 as a black civil rights organization that monitored hate groups because Reverend Vivian felt that we needed to keep an eye on these people because they had gotten away with murdering five anti-Klan protesters caught on videotape, yet they were acquitted in two different trials. So we monitored hate groups. That's what we did. And so I'm sitting in my offices and I get this phone call. Hello, I'd like to speak to Leonard Zeskin. Now, Lenny Zeskin was our research director at the time, a real noted anti-fascist researcher and stuff. And this deep bass voice asking for Leonard Zeskin could have been a bomb threat because we got a lot of those. <laughs> Matter of fact, Reverend Vivian's house had been firebombed in the past. So we always had this screening procedure. So this deep voice, I want to speak to Leonard Zeskin. And I'm saying, well, I have to take a message. Who's calling? And he said, Floyd Cochran. And before I could catch myself, I said, Floyd Cochran? The Floyd Cochran? <laughs> you know, because I knew who he was. We monitored him. He was the national spokesman for Richard Butler's Aryan Nations in Hayden Lake, Idaho. Huh. And so I kind of like fangirled in a way, like, the Floyd Cochran? He said, yes, I want to talk to Leonard Zeskin. I said, uh, I have to take a message. You know, so I took a number down, called Lenny, told him Floyd Cochran was trying to reach him. Lenny contacted him. What the, the long story is that Floyd's second son was born with a cleft palate. And Floyd, who'd been a Nazi since he was 14 years old and eventually made his way to the Aryan Nations compound, suddenly discovered that these Nazis he was hanging out with thought his son was a genetic defect who needed to be culled. And this turned Floyd's very agile brain back on because he was all right hating Jews. He was all right hating black people. He was all right hating queer people. But when that hatred came home to his second son, 
all of a sudden he realized these are not the people I want to hang around with anymore. And so he started asking questions of Pastor Butler. And one thing about cults is that you're not allowed to question. And the more questions he asked, the more he got pushed out of the compound till finally Pastor Butler gave him a couple of dollars and told him to leave. So he found himself on the side of the road with no friends, but he knew about us because we at the Center for Democratic Renewal, we had kind of like an informal underground railroad for people leaving hate movements. A lot of times when people want to leave a hate group. It's not like leaving the Kiwanis Club where you just sit at your resignation because they're leaving with a lot of knowledge of criminal activities. So they're more likely to kill you as a traitor or a security risk than to just let you go. You're not just going to walk away. And so they would contact our center for help. And what we would do is organize a network of usually churches who would provide them with some money and some relocation clothing and things like that so that they could reestablish themselves somewhere else. Now, we weren't the FBI. We couldn't give them a new identity or any of those kinds of things, but we could help them relocate. And so that's what we did. But did your instinct kick in right away? Oh, I'm going to help this guy. Or did how long did that process take? Well, Lenny talked to him for a couple of months before I got to talk to him again. And by the time Lenny bought him to me, Floyd had decided that he wanted to atone for a lot of the harm that he had done. And in particular, he had recruited these two brothers named Freeman in Allentown, Pennsylvania. He had recruited them into the Aryan nations. And one night they came home and murdered their entire family, their 12 year old brother, the mother and the father. And it just so happened that the week before the murder happened, the mother had reached out to me because she was afraid of her children. Uh, uh, Mrs. Freeman had reached out to me that Wednesday. And then that Saturday, the kids came home and killed the entire family. And I felt so helpless because I had, she told me that her, her, her 15 and 17 year old were threatening the family. And I advised her to change the, the doors, the locks on the door if she felt unsafe because she had tried the police, she had tried the Human Relations Commission, she had tried the, the school counselors. I mean, she had tried everything. And when she finally reached us down in Atlanta calling from Allentown, Pennsylvania, I was like, you have no choice but to make your family safe. Change the lock. But then her concern was that, but I'm their mother. I can't make a 15 and a 17-year-old homeless. She didn't want to lock her children out. And yet they came home that Saturday and killed them. And so Floyd had recruited them into the Aryan nations, you know, and they ended up with, you know, swastikas tattooed all over their bodies and stuff like that. And so he wanted to do a tour of atonement to apologize for the skinheads that he had recruited because he was a very persuasive orator. He was really smart. And, um, and so that's how we ended up working together, going around, ended up on the Jerry Springer show, which is not on my bio, uh, <laughs> but, you know, going around the country, giving Floyd an opportunity to try to dissuade alienated young white men like himself from joining 
the hate movement. Is there evidence that his tour succeeded in dissuading some people? Is there any way to measure that? You can't measure how you've changed somebody's hearts and minds. Right. You just do the best you can, and, and you, there's no way to scientifically measure that. But I believe he was persuasive because this wasn't someone who, who was just saying it because it's the moral thing to do, which is to resist hate. He was saying it's the smart thing to do because look what it's done to my life. Look what my lived experiences you can learn from. And if you listen, you can benefit from. So I thought he was very effective because he had actually joined the Nazis because he'd been bullied as a kid. Grew up in upstate New York, all white community. Far as he knew, he'd never met any Jewish people, any black people or anything. Yet he somehow got a hold of a copy of Mein Kampf or something. And he found that once he put on a swastika, instead of him being afraid of people, people were afraid of him. So, and they almost made a movie about it. Uh, based on my readings, they sent Floyd Co Cochran to you or your, the, the research director, Leonard right. Ziskin, sent him to you because he needed a friend. He needed, my program director job was to help communities deal with hate. And so I became Floyd's handler once his um, evidentiary needs had been met through Lenny, in other words, stripping him of all the information he had about how the Aryan nations worked. And it's, it sounds like an incredible movie. And why didn't it get made in a movie? It got to HBO, to a writer? Well, it got to a writer and they did, they did what I think Hollywood calls an option. So they paid us each $10,000 to option the story, which I basically is the rights to our story. I don't know how all of this works. But then when they sent us the treatment of the story, it was unrecognizable because the treatment that they gave us said that Floyd left the Aryan Nations because he fell in love with me, a black woman. And we were like, that is not at all how that happened. <laughs> you know? And we were like, why would they have to write that this way? Isn't this truth pretty astonishing within itself? You don't have to make up stuff. To have a very compelling story, just tell the truth. Right. And not only that, but Floyd was in, in a relationship. Like I said, he was talking about his second child. And I don't make a habit of falling in love with Nazis. And so it was just so awful. So it never went anywhere. So, 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 so that takes us, first of all, before we get to the present and this class that you are teaching at Smith College, which is getting a lot of buzz, they want you there. You, you now live near Smith College and here in Atlanta. Right. Because they want you there near there so badly. Well, they were very generous to me that after two years of teaching there as a visiting professor, they offered me tenure last year. So they've got me permanently now. And, and so we're going to get into you, this, this whole idea of the calling in, the calling out culture. But it, before there was a name for this and before you called it, and it was called, and you'll tell me the roots of it, calling in instead of calling out, so you were doing this this work uh, with Floyd, and before that, there was a story you told about meeting some KKK family members on a mountaintop in Tennessee, and it seems like that it's just one more story that I want to hear about how you learned to communicate and to have actually productive conversations with people who most of us rightfully would say, I don't want to engage. It actually goes in a job description of community organizer. When you're trying to persuade people 
to be with you, you've got to let go of trying to convince them to agree with you. Because you just want them to join the movement, not echo everything that you say and believe. And so a lot of people get community organizing wrong because they think it's about creating an echo chamber of groupthink. It is not. It's about creating a political force to create change. And to do that, you're going to have to have a lot of different voices and a lot of different petition, uh, opinions and a lot of different people. The way I describe it is that when a lot of different people move in the same direction, but they're thinking different thoughts, that's a movement. But when a lot of different people move in the same direction and they're thinking the same thought, that's a cult. And we are not building a cult. We're building a human rights movement, which requires us to understand how to talk to people who don't necessarily perfectly align with your thinking, but they're willing to work with you to achieve mutually agreed upon goals. But you have to agree on that core idea. So how do you describe the core idea of what everybody's got to be on the same page about? The core idea is usually represented in your values. Do you want a safe community for your children? Do you want to be able to work and provide for your family in a way that you earn a wage enough so that you can pay your rent and pay your bills on time? Do you want children to be able to go to school without worrying about ducking guns and bullets and stuff like that? Do you think every child deserves you know, a right to an education and a good meal in order to concentrate on their books when, they, when they're in school and stuff like that. When you break it out of ideology into human values, you can convince a whole lot of people to work with you. You just got to let go of the labels that you assign to people simply because we've been taught to think in very simplistic binary ways of good, evil, right, left, Republican, Democrat, those kinds of things. When in fact, if you break it down to values and you talk value-driven language, you'd be surprised and awed by how many people are willing to support you because you're speaking to their values, not the, their label. So what did you learn on this front from a meeting on the mountaintop with family members of the KKK? Well, these women had called me because first of all, they were masquerading as, I don't think, well, masquerading is probably not a good, they were a women's quilting guild or club or something like that. So they got together to sew, apparently. But they contacted me because they were the wives or lovers or whatever of pe people who were in the Klan, men who were in the Klan. And this was and about what year? This would have been in the 90s, because it was from 1990 to 95 that I did this work. So it would have been in the early 90s. And uh, so they contacted the Center for Democratic Renewal because they wanted an anti-racist training. And this was because they did not want their children to grow up in the hate movement. And generally, when these kind of epiphanies happen, it's not because they've suddenly decided to join the Black Lives Matter movement or anything like that. It's because they're afraid of getting caught up in even more criminal activity. You know, it's a self-preservation kind of thing. And the children, it came and back to, just, just like it did with Floyd and the cleft palate. It, it came back to wanting better for their children. And so they contacted me and asked me to come up there to this rural mountaintop to do this anti-racist training for them. But in the midst of the training, 
first of all, I didn't think that they had a whole lot of conversations previously with any black people, and particularly someone who was coming up there to teach them anti-racist principles. And so they kept quite generously calling me the colored girl. Like, you're very well spoken for a colored girl. Do you sing any Negro spirituals kind of thing? I mean, they actually asked me if I could sing them a Negro spiritual. And by the way, I have to say, you just told me before the camera started rolling, <laughs> you come from a very musical background, perfect ear, perfect pitch, can't, can't sing. Can't hold can't. a note in a bucket, right? And so, and so when they asked this of me, it took me aback. Because I naively thought that anybody by the 1990s knew not to use the word colored girl and knew not to ask every black woman if she was Mahalia Jackson. Fast forwarding to 2022, on a college campus, if somebody were to say something like that, like what those KKK women said to you, KKK family members mm -hmm. said to you, what would the reaction in a student body be? And how would you advise the student body to react? Well, first of all, in the student body, there'd probably be performance of outrage because they want to show how woke they are how harmed they are by such an anachronistic term. Uh, they want to show that they're not the people who would use those words, particularly if they were white. They would be very intentional about demonstrating that their whiteness is not that whiteness kind of thing. So there's a lot of that competitive, I'm not that kind of white thing going on. Uh, for the students of color in general and the black students in particular, they want to show how they're harmed by this word and no one should ever call me colored or assume that I can sing kind of thing. So I think there'd be a lot of histrionics. That's the only thing I could call it. But is not an element of that just outrage, like appropriate outrage? Well, you can be troubled by something without causing harm based on your reaction to it. It's a choice to cause harm just because you've been hurt. There's no obligation for a hurt person to go around hurting others. That's a choice. So what would you advise if we called you in? Professor Smith is here to give you some advice. How specifically would you advise those students? Would you put words in their mouth? Would you give them an approach, a mindset? I would ask them to first pause, take a deep breath, and ask the person who used that offensive word a simple request. Tell me more about why you used that word. So you've already let some of the oxygen out of the fire, you know, because you've turned it, instead of a conflict, you've turned it into a conversation. You've given, you're giving people an opportunity to actually talk about why that word existed in the first place, got used, giving an opportunity to say, well, we don't say that anymore. This is now what we say kind of thing. So you're offering a chance for shared learning instead of that shame, blaming, and calling out kind of thing that shuts the whole conversation down. And so I can teach them how to achieve accountability with love instead of anger and hate. Because it's not about letting the harm go unaddressed because it's not a civility lesson. That's what a lot of people think. Calling in is just about papering over harm and pretending it didn't happen. No, calling in is about identifying harm 
and choosing an effective strategy to keep that harm from continuing. So are you focused at all on the outcome of those conversations? Like what is it that you seek to, to develop through a conversation like that? Is it ultimately an apology or is it just a deeper understanding or is it, a, is it an effort to, we're gonna recruit someone on our team who might not have thought they wanted to be on our team, the social justice team. I think my goal is to show people that you're stronger than you think you are, that you are capable of having a difficult conversation with someone you might have dismissed because they used the wrong gender pronoun or a word that you didn't like or shared a perspective, but you're actually strong enough to listen to that person, to see more into their intent and into their heart than you thought you were capable of doing. And you're capable of choosing to repurpose what you define as harm in a way that's more constructive than destructive. You're actually capable of being more than your self-definition as a victim. That's what I want people to walk away with, that you can do more, you can be more, and so can the people around you be invited to do more, be more, as opposed. So it's not about actually controlling other people, because that's another myth, that we think we can find the magic words that can control other people. I mean, if we had those kinds of powers, just think how many married couples wouldn't fight or families wouldn't fight. We don't have that power to actually control others with our words, but we do have the power to use words that aptly portray who we want to be in a conversation or in the world. And I want my words to always portray that I'm, I'm ready to offer you grace, forgiveness, respect, and love, because that's how I want to be seen in the world. Now, whether you're able to accept that, that's different, because that's on you. So you talk about the definition of harm, and clearly you feel that some people feel that certain things cause more harm than, it, than they should. It sounds like you see that people are overestimating or overstating how much harm certain statements cause. And it, it brings to mind a woman who, who had a long discussion with me about microaggressions and growing up uh, as, as a black woman, a biracial woman, Julie Lithcott Hames, actually. And she's wrote, written very eloquently about this in her memoir called uh, uh, Real American. And when she started going through the litany of microaggressions that she would experience over the course of many, many years, I felt like, man, she really is being harmed. Now, she's a strong woman, but there's a lot of harm there. We have to sensitize people to what causes that level of harm. So how do you feel about it? I know that word microaggressions is, uh, that there's, 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 there's a lot in that word. When you hear that word, what do you think as it relates to your definition of harm? Well, what I've experienced, and I can only go with that statement, is there's different types of microaggressions. Some of them are intentional. They're meant to put me in my place. And some of them are unintentional. So before I re react with a one-size-fit-all response, I'm going to do a little bit of checking out to see whether it was intentional or not. Because if you step on my foot accidentally, that's one thing. If you did it on purpose, 
That's another thing. Even though my foot is still hurting in both of those cases, I have a different reaction if it was an accident than if it was on purpose. And I have to use that kind of threat assessment because otherwise, as a black person in a white supremacist society, I'd be permanently in the state of looking for a fight, looking for a place to happen. Do you know how I would find it impossible to watch what goes for television in America if I'm constantly looking out for every white person who ever said anything racist or capable of doing something racist? I'd never be able to interact with this world. And so you have to, you can't prevent living in a situation that creates these microaggressions because the only thing you actually can't control is your response and reaction to them. And to me, I like to reserve my emotional responses for those things that were malevolent, that were meant to harm me because I really want to take care of those people. Whereas if it was unintentional, I'm going to work with that person because that doesn't make you an enemy. At worst, you're a problematic ally. I find a lot of microaggressions are really racially illiterate white people wanting to give an awkward compliment. I mean, like I remember when I first started growing my dreadlocks in 1980, a lot of people didn't know dreads. They didn't know Bob Marley, Whoopi Goldberg hadn't dreaded. So nobody knew what this wild African hairstyle was. And so this white woman walked up to me one day and she said, that's an interesting hairstyle. Do you wash it? She was literally asking about something she had never encountered before. Now, obviously, you know, in 1981 or two, I wanted to say, yeah, I wash my hair. Do you wash yours? I mean, that would have been my, that would have been my reaction back then. If somebody then. said that to you today, what would your reaction be? I'd say, yeah, I do wash my hair. Do you wash yours? And why would you ask me that? Or what's going on with you? Where I wouldn't react with anger, but I would point out to them how silly that question actually is. By the way, you used a the phrase there, problematic allies. I, Everybody's a problematic ally to me. I have yet to meet an intellectual clone. I don't know if I want to meet an intellectual clone. So by definition, you think differently than I do. So at, 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 at worst, you're a problematic ally generally. Hmm. You, you're making me want to go out and search for some problematic allies right now. Isn't that what you're surrounded by? Unless you're hanging out with a bunch of people in hate movements. Oh, you're right. And even there, you can't trust because you can have someone like Floyd who's flips. Right, right. But I tend to judge you by the choices, not that you make, but the choices that you would make differently in the future uh, kind of thing. Because we're all filled with the woulda, coulda, shoulda regrets. I mean, you couldn't be a human being with an examined life without having your head filled with woulda, coulda, shouldas. It's interesting you bring, it's interesting you bring that up because I just interviewed for a Wavemaker conversation an author named Daniel Pink, who has written a number of bestsellers. And his latest book, which is just coming out, is called The Power of Regret, How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. Yeah. And... I was really into this theme because I also interviewed a guy who's, uh, uh, who's taught at Stanford for many years, one of the leading, a father of modern psychoanalysis named Dr. Irvin Yalom. And when I spoke with him, he also told me about how he likes to use regrets in therapy because if you can look back at your regrets and address them, 
it will enable you to live a more regret-free future. And, and so what this guy, Daniel Pink, this author did, he did a global survey of regrets. He got thousands of responses and he found out, you know, are there any patterns to people's biggest regrets? So before I give you the answer, I wanna ask you, you brought up the issue of regrets. Do you have any major regrets in your life? And if so, have you used them to channel yourself to a more regret-free future? If I could group most of my regrets is from things I didn't do versus the things I've done. Um, I didn't take better care of my health. That's a regret. And so, of course, now that I'm almost 70, that's coming back to haunt me. I regret not having better access to dental care when I was a child. So now I'm struggling to keep my natural teeth together kind of thing. I regret uh, not being more tolerant of people because I'm a call out queen. I spent a lot of my life using my highly opinionated self telling a whole lot of people off and I regret that in some way. I've regretted the mistakes that I've made. I, but mostly I regret things I didn't do more so than the things that I did do. Guess what? That was like the main conclusion of his global regret survey. And many of them had to do with regrets at not being bold enough, not speaking out. Now, now that's not something I've suffered. <laughs> Actually, I have, I have been outspoken ever since I joined my debate team in junior high school. I was an invisible middle child because I'm one of eight kids. And so I'm number six in, in the ranking, and I'm a middle girl. So I felt very invisibilized in my family. And so it wasn't until I got on my junior high school debate team that I found my voice. And then I realized that I loved my using my voice. And it's kind of strange because I'm actually, by nature, believe it or not, an introvert with an extroverted profession. And so that's why I'm so great alone with my books and my libraries and stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm my own favorite person to be alone with. <laughs> you know? That's a, that's a great, you know, I'm an only child. So like I learned how to be my own favorite person to be, but out of necessity, but that, that's really interesting. But so this debate team in junior high school, so that's so interesting because, you know, debate is about argument and it's about winning. Yeah. And now you have evolved to a place where your definition of winning is different. Yeah, my definition debate. of winning is creating a container where everybody gets heard as opposed to having the final word in the argument. Because that means nothing to me. Because, hey, I'm, see, I'm, I have so much personal power that I, and certitude that I will believe in something that's wrong with all my heart. And it's not until I get more information that it proves to be wrong. And that's happened to me so many times that I, I just don't, I don't trust my certitudes. I love ambiguity because when I'm feeling ambiguous about something, that always tells me that there's more knowledge to be gained. There's more information to be gleaned out of something. So I'm afraid of my certainties. I really like to... To, to back off of those. And I had to learn those early on. So this is so, is so interesting <laughs> because you back off your, there's something in debate. I was not a debater, but one of the th techniques in debate is to 
figure out the strongest argument that the other side has, make it better than they could ever make it, and then tear it apart. Now, you were going to junior high school. Was that Texas at the time? Yeah, in Texas. Were you, you know, in, in, did you feel like you were really part of that community? What kind of community was it? And uh, you know, where, where did you get that appetite for debate? But more importantly, did you have to debate in order to really sort of stake your ground in, in a Texas junior high school? Or was it or was it a totally open, embracing place? Well, I went to predominantly white schools, for number one. So I was like three kids in the honors class, or what they call AP now, but honors class. And so there was always a need to hold my own amongst this, you know, the 30-odd kids who were white kids that were in honors class and the two or three of us black kids. So there was always finding my voice in that setting. But then once I, but once I got into the debate team, then all of my natural proclivities became very helpful because I've always been a, you know, avid reader. And so reading Endless Times and Newsweeks and Reader's Digest and U.S. World Reports and stuff, I mean, I used to inhale those like a whale taking in her herring. I was just sucking that up, and I knew I was better read than all of my classmates because I would learn to speed read, by the way, in, in the sixth grade. So I would read and read and read and read. And so no matter what they bought to debate, I knew more because I read such a wide range of sources. So I would encounter their arguments before they knew they were their arguments kind of thing. And so, but it was very routine, by the way, in the educational system back then, before it got totally deformed, to teach students public speaking school skills, to teach them debate skills. It was just as natural as teaching us how to speed read and how to type. These were skills that, were, were were quite normal in my junior high school. They weren't seen as exceptional. It wasn't until we had the deformation of the public school system in the 1970s under neoliberal capitalism that all these skill sets disappeared. But I was lucky in the 60s to be exposed to these skills that have served me well for the rest of my life. So what kinds of things are, are cropping up now? And you, you work as, as a consultant to businesses, you, you're a professor on campus, you're a public speaker, you're getting exposed to, you know, the range of possible offenses that people might commit in speech, uh, intentionally or unintentionally. Give me an example of one that you've come across recently that is sort of a good example of, here's how we can use, let's come back really sharply to the, the calling in culture. So you can sort of describe that for us, because I, before I leave here, I want to feel like I can go out and share with other people, here's a process, here's a mindset, how we can take this calling in culture and really use it to the betterment of society. Well, I feel right now, I'm surrounded by a lot of people who are telling me who to hate. <laughs> and they're trying to tell me who to hate because of whatever system they're using to decide that they want somebody canceled or called out. So it could be a comedian who says a joke that didn't land right, or an artist who now we found out that they've done something wrong in their lives so we shouldn't like their words, or someone who didn't get the gender pronoun right, or someone who had a tweet that they did 10 years ago now unearthed and weaponized against them. So. 
we're all surrounded by people trying to order us to hate different people for different reasons. And there's a palpable fear that if you don't give in to that, then you'll be defined as the person who agrees with whatever was homophobic, transphobic, racist, or sexist, or whatever. So there's a lot of social pressure to conform with this army of hatred, this army of contempt towards people who don't participate in popular thinking kind of thing. Although sometimes I, I, my sense of it is, you know, having, having three kids growing up, uh, it's not necessarily telling people to hate something, but to have like a zero tolerance policy for it. The idea being, if you tolerate it, if you let it slide, it's going to metastasize. There is that, but there's, a, again, there's a way to pursue accountability without anger, hatred, and contempt. I mean, let's look at, um, okay, I'm about to get in trouble because I'm about to come to the defense of J.K. Rawlings and Harry Potter fame, who, she doesn't know me, I don't know her. But what, I don't agree with her dismissal of trans women, I mean, just, she hasn't lived that reality. I haven't lived that reality. So how can you deny their reality simply because you haven't lived with it? There's that. At the same time, that's her point of view. And whether or not she should be getting death threats because that's her point of view, I take a lot of exception to. I really do. So let's say if we, if we bury the violent threats aspect of that and we say, Oh, J.K. Rawlings has just been invited to a college campus to give an address, and a number of students say, "I find that objectionable because of reviews on trans, you know, on trans people." How do you advise those students who don't want somebody like J.K. Rowling to come and speak on campus? Well, first of all, I think that I'd probably advise them not to protest her speech, but to go there and engage with her, but engage because I don't equate a J.K. Rowling's with the Holocaust denier. See, there, there, see, there's continuum of disagreement. I mean, she has an opinion that doesn't make it fact. Right? A Holocaust denier has an opinion that doesn't make it fact. But there's different harms, in my opinion. Uh, we're still in a debate about the gender fluidity continuum which is fine. This is a society is what we're supposed to debate. We're in a debate about the racial fluidity continuum. We're in a debate about a lot of um, the, uh, what do they call the neurodivergence continuum. We're in a lot of debates on those kind of things. But that's different than debating or questioning palpable facts. And to me, a fact is like the Holocaust happened and six million people died and you don't get to deny that. You don't get to have an opinion about the disappearance and murdering, you know, of, of six million people kind of thing. And nor do you get to come to my science department because you because you believe the earth is flat and you don't believe in gravity. There's certain things, evidence and facts that I'm not going to give the imprimatur of approval to. Well, some things I will because because they're within the realm of what I consider debate. And so. If J.K. Rowling was invited to Smith College, I'd probably come down on, oh, actually, we don't even have to use J.K. Rowling. 
there was a big controversy this past September when Nancy Pelosi came to Smith College. There was a whole body of students who protested that. And then there was a body of right-wingers who protested that. I mean, so we don't even have to use a hypothetical. But I counseled the students to um, participate in a conversation about the significance of Pelosi's visit rather than to protest her coming. I mean, really? You can't engage with her in conversation because you disagree with certain policy positions that she's taken? Then that means the world has to be run exactly according to your desires or you're not going to participate in it. Is that the kind of standards that you're setting? And some people said that they were offended by her. I'm like, uh, the most powerful woman in Congress, you're offended by it in the midst of our fight against fascism? And that's what you've chosen to get offended by? I mean, what is your, who's teaching you to make a, a competent threat assessment here? <laughs> This is such a, once again, you've used this term, this is the first time you've used this term, a competent threat assessment, which is a relevant term in U.S. national or in national security, in your in personal security, in raising a family. It's such a powerful concept, competent threat assessment. So that means that someone who's capable of telling me a, telling a sexist joke in my hearing cannot be equated to someone who's going to pin me down and rape me. <laughs> and look, Both can be offensive, but let me tell you, I know the difference between someone who's exhibiting physical threat versus someone who's sexually illiterate. And look, you say you know the difference, and, and you've talked about this and written about this, but you have experienced a lot of harm. Yeah. And so I don't overstate harm because I have the lived experience as a rape survivor, an incest survivor. And so I don't I don't have a lot of tolerance for people who cause harm. I'm not trying to say we need to coddle them, but at the same time I'm not one of those who has only defined myself through what's happened to me because I think I'm better and bigger than all the things that have happened to me. So I'm not one of those that wraps myself so securely in a victim mantle that I think that's all there is to Loretta Ross. And, and by the way, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just clarify, I'll just clarify because you, you were just talking about your father, the incest did not have to do with your father. No, 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 this was a cousin. Yeah, no, but, you know, but just so, so yeah, people clarify, use your When I do your, say incest, they always assume it was daddy and like, no, actually, daddy would have killed my cousin if he could have gotten hold of him. And, but here's, here's what I want to ask you though, because clearly the harm you suffered, you didn't get over immediately. There's no, no way you could have. No, and it took years of therapy. It took, I, first of all, I have to say, the women I met in the feminist movement raised me. They're the ones that helped me find the words to attach to what had happened to me, to help me see that it wasn't my fault, that I wasn't a bad person because all this terrible stuff had happened to me, that there was a future to Loretta that wasn't predicated not only on what happened to me, but the bad stuff I did. Because I did a lot of harm, too. So it's not like I was a perfect, innocent victim all the time in my life. I made big mistakes. I had one of the wisest women tell me, she said, Loretta, 
if you don't learn anything else, recognize that when you have bad news about yourself, be the first to run and tell it so that you can control the narrative. Never let a story hang over your head like the sword of Damocles and you spend your life in fear wondering when it's gonna come out. The way to defang any bad news is to run and tell it first. All right, so give me, a, you gotta give me an example now. What did you run and tell? Well, it was after I failed to do that. Right. It wasn't because I knew to do that. Right, right. But, oh, well, let me tell you. Uh, when I was 27 years old, I embezzled some money from the D.C. Rape Crisis Center where I was working. And uh, that's the context in which I got this great advice. And so what I've learned is that, and then there was 10 years, I wouldn't tell anybody that I had done that. Because I didn't think that my reputation as a feminist could survive having been drug addicted and embezzling money. Is that what happened? You were drug addicted? Uh, yeah, I was drug addicted and justified to myself embezzling this money. And so finally, what happened in a very specific way was that I'd worked at NOW, the National Organization for Five Years, uh, for, National Organization for Women for five years. And a few years after I left that job, someone asked me if I would run for president of NOW. Um, that's because they were recruiting candidates. I don't think I was particularly qualified, but anyway. Uh, but I had to decline the recruitment strategy. And when the woman asked me why, I said, well, I got to tell you something I've done in my past. And any good reporter could find this out because it made the Washington Post. I mean, so it's not like this is a well-hidden secret. And I told her about the embezzlement. And that's when I realized I've got to normalize telling this story because this may not be the first time this comes up. So it took me 10 years after I did it to own that I'd done it publicly. And now I just tell it all the time. So to teach people how even when your worst mistake is in the Washington Post, it still doesn't define you. And maybe that's why you have the ability to laugh so much because really you have a great sense of humor and you just, your spirit is uplifting. Have you always been just like a laugher? Well, I've always been an optimist, no, but you know, as a woman who's daily dealing with depression, I don't think I'm always a laugher. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, because it is impossible, I think, to escape a childhood populated by so many incidents, instances of childhood sexual abuse with a healthy psyche without intentional work on that psyche. And so I was very lucky that when I was 27 and I had blown up my life and my career through this drug habit, that friends and, and acquaintances encouraged me to go get some therapy, and I did. And, uh, and I remember being so fortunate because you know, therapy can be very expensive. And I was able to go to Howard University Counseling Services and pay only $5 a session because I was a former Howard student, wow. even though I wasn't enrolled at Howard still. So let me ask, did you, because with depression, with severe depression, oh, yeah. you can lose the ability to laugh. Yes. I, has, has that ever happened to you? And then what got you over the hump? 
Well, I don't know if I ever lost the ability to laugh because I've always had a messed up sense of humor. <laughs> I was one of those people that always found weird things to laugh about while everybody else was like, I don't think that's funny. Tell me how you got into reading as a child. Are there any particular books as an adult that have just had a big influence on you? Oh. You know... I'm like the mother with a million kids and someone's asking me for who's my favorite. And I can't, I can't, because I like each of them for different things. I was just rereading the If poem the other day. The If poem, I don't know that one. Is, is it about Kipling? For some reason, the If poem just came into my mind and, I, and, and it's been occupying my brain for the last... Hold on, we got we got to, because we got to nail that, let's see. If by Roger Clipping. Okay. Um, do, you want to, do you want to read it? <laughs> if you could keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies are being hated, don't give way to hating, and don't look too good or talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, if you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue, or walk with kings nor lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you. If all men count with you, but not too much of this. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I don't know. There's every line of that poem I love. <laughs> and it just keeps coming. So I don't know if there's a book that moves me as much as every line of that poem. Because every one of it resonates as some part of my life. And Kipling was a racist. So if I had dismissed him because he was a racist, could I say I appreciate his poem? I never got exposed to that poem. Um... And it does seem to connect. You say so much of it resonates with your life. Reading Triumph and what is Triumph and Disaster and treating those same imposters the same. That moves me. So, because my mother said that to me as a child, when she sent me off to college, she said, Loretta, what I admire about you is that you don't let success go to your head. And I poo-pooed her because I interrupted her. I said, oh, mom, you know, I read Reader's Digest. I know what you were getting ready to say. She said, shut up, because you're always running your mouth. What I'm trying to say is that you don't let success go to your head, but you also don't let failure go to your heart. And those are the words my mom sent me off to college with at 16. And so that resonates meeting triumph and disaster and seeing them as twin imposters that still don't define who I am.